Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And I'm Phil Wolf of the Nefers Initiative. This is the Herpeticulture Podcast, which is part of the Herpeticulture Network. Enjoy the show. Here we are. Welcome, everybody. This is episode 116 of the Herpeticulture Podcast. I am Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And I am Phil Wolf of the Nefers Initiative. And I'm Kevin Messenger. We are joined by Kevin Messenger. Um, yes. Very excited. We're talking about the book that he just released, uh, The Asian Rat Snakes and Kin of Greater China. Um, literally just got released within the last week. Uh, I got my copy. Phil's, his exists, just not in his hands at his house. But Yes, it was, it was delivered to the wrong residence, but I will have it tomorrow. But this show is brought to you by Steve Snakeshare and his Venom Hot Sauces and Sean at MP Cages and Exotics. So you need a rack, you need a cage. Sean's the man to talk to. If you need hot sauces or you just want to help support a good cause, then you definitely need to check out Steve's uh, Facebook page and website uh, where you can buy said hot sauces. They help him with uh, public outreach and uh, rescuing and rehabbing uh, whatever critters he happens to be called out, uh, called out for. So definitely give him a shout. Um, but I mean, I'm, I'm excited about this, man. I, I haven't read the book yet. Uh, obviously it just got released. Um, but I did flip through it. I, I did a pretty thorough flip when I got it in the other day at work and I'm stupid excited to, to read this thing. Um, yeah, man, the, the back cover alone is oh, yeah. just breathtaking. Yeah. I had a lot of fun, uh, creating it. Did you do all the like the layout, like the actual design and stuff? Yeah, I did everything uh, wow. from bottom to top. Um, I don't think I'm going to do that on any future projects because the formatting was easily the most time-consuming aspect. Mm-hmm. But it's still kind of cool to say, you know, you've done it from you did everything. You did the layout, yeah. you did the editing. The only thing I didn't do was the translations. Okay, still soup to nuts, man. A, a great accomplishment. Thanks. Thanks. I'm pretty happy yeah, with it. Because the way you described it is like a, a field guide, but also uh, a reference book. Like a reference book. Yeah. So, and it yeah. is kind of both. Like it's, you know, if you happen to take this with you and you are in fact in, in China, like it has all the, the translations. Yeah. 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 That was part of the whole point. It was, um, you know, if you feel like it, it can just stay on the bookshelf as a reference material. But if you're going to China or anywhere that has any of these species, because I don't just stop at the border of China. You know, a lot of these species extend into other countries mm-hmm. in South Asia. And so if they do extend in those other countries, then they're it's represented there. So, yeah, if you were to go to Thailand or Vietnam or India or Myanmar or wherever, um, this would still be useful. But part of the point for the whole China part was if you do decide to go herping in China and you have a, a snake that you want to find, um, you go to the general location. And I came across this multiple times when I was uh, doing my initial work in China. Um, yeah, I would try to point at a description of some habitat, you know, a nice rocky hillside. I need to go to some location as a nice rocky mm-hmm. hillside. But, you know, all my texts were in English, 
and all the locals, they can't read English. So it was kind of pointless to bring yeah. that with them. I could bring a Chinese text, but then I can't read the important information to know what to point at, to say, mm -hmm. hey, I'll go here. So yeah, that was the whole point, was to make it possible to bring out into the field. Um, so I had to kind of limit the size. Um, but yeah. Or and, it can stay on a bookshelf. And how, how much Mandarin or Chinese or what have you did you learn when you were in your travels? Uh, I can get around. Um, you know, of course, I, I still live there. I would be there right now if not for the current situation. Um, I took, so before I went there for the first time, which was in 06, I took a private tutor for three months. And in those three months of doing a private tutor, I learned more, I could speak more sentences, more Chinese sentences than I could speak Spanish sentences from learning Spanish for three years. Wow. So Impressive. is it, I mean, would you consider it a different, difficult language to learn? Because I think to us, it seems wildly complicated. Spoken Chinese, no. If all you want to no. do is have a conversation with somebody, no. The grammar doesn't exist. There is no grammar. It's very simplistic. It's very straight and to the point. Mm -hmm. You don't have a lot of fluff words that we have. Uh, you don't have a lot of um, conjugation. There is no conjugation. Uh, you don't have plurals. Um, if you can do one to 10, then you can go all the way up to 99. It's just really simplistic as far as spoken goes. But yeah, if you count reading and writing, then no, it's one of the most difficult languages in the world. Hmm. So if all you want to do is speak it to get around, yeah, you can learn a lot in a short period of time. Very cool. Yeah. Well, before we dive into sort of the book stuff, um, I should preface this by saying it is Dr. Kevin Messenger. Uh, you have a PhD. Um, yeah. So can you give us some of your, as far as background, you know, how you got sure. to where you are currently? And Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, I did my undergrad at NC State. Uh, then I went up to Marshall University to do my master's up there. Um, and then after that, while I was there, uh, Dr. Pauly, who was my professor at Marshall, I somehow, I forget, yeah, this is, in, I was at Marshall in 09 to 10, and I had done the China job right after I finished my undergrad at NC State. So my whole China experience began with a summer internship, basically. Um, somebody posted a job on the internet that said, we need a student to come to the mountains of central China to do a survey for reptiles and amphibians in a place where it's never been done before. And so, you know, wow. backpacking, camping out for four months in the mountains of rural China at a place that's never been surveyed before. That was a dream. Just yeah, say no to that. Yeah. 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 You can't say no to that. That's amazing. Yeah. So that was my first introduction to it. And, you know, I found a whole bunch of stuff, lots of really cool stuff. Um, and the people there, they, they loved the work I did. And they invited me back um, pretty much every summer. I returned in 08 with my parents. And we went to the same site. And we did another month-long survey. And um, again, they loved it. So when I came back to the US and I was looking for grad schools, um, Dr. Pauly knew that I had this interest in China. So when I finished at Marshall, he said, hey, by the way, I know of this one professor down in Alabama. Um, he's Chinese, he's 
you know, now American citizen, but he goes to China every summer and does his, his work there. You should consider taking up a PhD program with him. So I did. Uh, that was Dr. Wong um, down at Alabama A&M. So I reached out to him, told him my interests, and he said, yeah, uh, sure, come on, join the team, and we'll head to China this summer. So we did. Um, and basically, at that point, that began my PhD program with Dr. Wong. And while I was in the PhD program with Dr. Wong, we have this collaboration, or Dr. Wong has this collaboration, with Nanjing Forestry University. So the two universities kind of cooperate. Whenever we go there, we get to stay at their university. Um, they give us housing. They help us with all the arrangements. And one summer, uh, one of the professors said, hey, Kevin, you know, you're doing so much work here. Um, you should just enroll at, as a PhD student here as well. And, you know, if you do enough classes, you can get a second PhD at a Chinese university. Wow. So I did that. So I was taking two um, PhDs at the same time. And then I finished my U.S. PhD. And then about a month later, I graduated with my Chinese PhD. Wow. And, and then after that, a um, couple months later, the Chinese university offered me a position uh, straight to professor. And uh, so did uh, a university in the U.S., but the Chinese job was a way better offer. So that's that's incredible. So I took it. It's awesome. So what are you a professor of over there? Uh, technically professor of zoology. Okay. But I, I teach um, animal behavior, animal distributions, ecology, stuff like that. Now, are you teaching in English or are you teaching in oh, yeah. English? Okay. For sure. Okay. Um, one, if you're, I, I only teach graduate students. I don't teach undergrads. Um, all graduate students are required to know English. So wow. by having me as a teacher, it kind of helps um, prepare them for whenever they're going to give international conferences and talks. Oh, whatnot. Hmm. Cause we were talking about before Phil got here, we were chatting a little bit back and forth. And so I was saying how that's, you know, going over there and doing, being able to do the surveys and stuff. I mean, that that's like the dream for probably a lot of us, because you think about that, that territory, especially like Montane China in particular and the surrounding areas, we really don't know a whole lot about what's up there and the animals that are, that are there. You know, just like you were talking about Dynakistradon before you, you know, before we went live or, or started recording. And, uh, you know, you mentioned that you'd never found one, but you really want to do radio telemetry. And it's like, but has anybody done anything like that with with species up there? No, not really. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of the and so, yeah, uh, that was one of my whole main reasons for wanting to do so much work in China to live there. I can easily make a career. I don't want to live there forever, but I do want to put in a significant amount of time. There's so much to uncover. There's so much that's still unknown. You know, okay, let me cover the first topic before I get sidetracked. I get sidetracked too easily. We do too. Uh, so yeah, with radio telemetry, you know, radio telemetry has been done, what, in the U.S. since I think maybe the 70s was probably the first, some of the first radio telemetry projects. Yeah. Nobody has ever done us uh, with her with snakes 
a successful radio telemetry project? I mean, there are so many questions that you could answer. Again, you know, Dynakistradon or any of these egg-laying vipers. Um, I, I want to do a project with Monchonensis, of course, but that's a whole nother set of red tape and hurdles. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I was kind of thinking um, kind of as a pilot study to show the Mangshan National Nature Reserve that it's safe and it can produce all this awesome information. I was kind of wanting to pick what they consider a common species, Dynakistridon. And, you know, it's a nice, big, fat viper. It should mm -hmm. be able to be a really nice, easy, quick project. That's um, awesome. But yeah, nobody's never nobody's done a rated telemetry project with snakes successfully. I think they tried to do them a project with uh, Gloidius uh, Shudalensis, the Snake Island Gloidius, up in mm -hmm. uh, just east of Beijing in the ocean there, and I think it failed for whatever reason. I don't know what the reason was, but that's a genus you don't hear anything about anymore, man. Yeah, Gloidius is a a big, massive mess it's a it's a big mess i don't even know how many species are in that genus currently i think around 46 maybe really wow i think so i actually wow. have so what's been kind of fun if you want to call it fun i consider it kind of fun <laughs> is whenever i get frustrated with a complex whether that's gloidius or lycodon or oligodon or whatever i like to make one of these little bilingual pamphlets that I was, I was talking about. First, mm -hmm. they start off as a pamphlet, and then once they get bigger and bigger, I can call it a book. So I have a pamphlet on what I'm just calling the, the genus Gloidius. And then, so I have a little book, tiny little book, that has all the species of Gloidius in it. Not just from China, but just all over the mm -hmm. world. And yeah, so I'm, that's why I'm thinking it's around 46. Wow. Very cool. I had no idea. Yeah, I, I would have guessed 20 max-ish, you know. See, I wasn't even thinking that much. I thought they were all just, you know, regional phenotype type stuff, but that's really impressive. And then now Dynakistridon, that's monotypic, correct? Yep, yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. Let me ask you this since we're on the topic. So I've kept Dynakistridon in the past. Are they truly sexually dimorphic as adults or no? No, I don't think so. Okay. Um, I, I cannot look at an individual and say whether it's male or female. Okay, because we had in the past, there was a few of us that kept them on a couple of small imports that came in captive bred from Europe. And almost all the males were like a slate or like a blue color. And all the females were like a, a dusky brown tan color. Huh. And we always were told by whomever, I don't even remember who we got it from, this was a decade ago, that they're sexually dimorphic and boys were blue, quote unquote, and girls were brown. And No, I never yeah, heard. Yeah, so... I figured I'd ask, ask the experts, so to speak. I will ask one of my friends in China. He um, has another friend who breeds Dynakistridon for the traditional medicine. So okay. he has a huge population of Dynakistridon. That's awesome. And I'll ask him if that guy can look at an individual and tell if it's male or female. Yeah. Awesome. Yes. Yeah, I think given sort of just the the political issues i think that's why china like everyone feels like china's just this giant mystery yeah. bubble yeah yeah when um mom and dad went with me in 08 um 
you know, we're hiking on the Great Wall, which this picture, the picture on the front cover, that's from that 08 trip. Um, and Dad was just talking about how never in his lifetime would he have imagined being herping in China. Yeah. Yeah, growing up, yeah. when he grew up, the concept was just out there. Never, never crossed his mind. So, so both your parents are herpers too? My dad is, um, just by hobby, not by profession, uh, emergency vet. Um, my mom, she loves wildlife and she likes being outdoors, but not so much the snakes. She, she yeah. herps by default. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she herps by association. Exactly. Yeah, Matt, Matt actually said we should ask you about that picture. Cause I guess there's some, there's some story behind the, um, the picture on the cover there. Well, I mean, uh, not a crazy cool story. I mean, I don't know, maybe. All right, so this is an 08. Um, a friend of mine that I met through the Field Herp Forum back when that was the place to be, uh, Scott Lupian. Uh, he lives in Beijing. He's still in Beijing. He's been living in China for, I don't know, 15 years now, maybe. Um, so on our, our one-month trip, at the end of the trip, we meet back up with Scott. He greeted us. On our arrival, then we went down to Shenongjia in Hubei province, which is where I did that four-month survey back in 06. Uh, and then on our return trip, we went back to Beijing, and Scott said, hey, I found this place on the Great Wall, the ruins of the Great Wall. It's not the, it's not the thing that they keep up and show tourists. You know, if you, go, if you go to China and you go to the Great Wall, you're going to be shoulder to shoulder with people. Like... You know, it's a big tourist trap. Right. Yeah. But the place that he had found um, was the original Great Wall. It was falling apart. Um, you know, there's trees growing out of it. And he thinks he's like, hey, this is probably a good place to find some snakes. Which, you know, if you have a 700 year old rock pile sitting there, then <laughs> yeah. sure, there's yeah. going to be snakes there. Absolutely. And so uh, it was Scott, his son, me, mom and dad. And we, we hit the trail, and uh, almost immediately, we find this, um, this Alafia anomala. I guess, you know, some people call them Korean rat snakes, but mm -hmm. um, there's debate about whether they're actually in Korea or not, because some of the genetics, they think that entire population might be Russian bloodline and not Korean, or not, not anomala bloodline. Yeah. But anyway... So we found this anomala almost immediately. Um, super thrill, loved it. Um, we bagged it because one of the thoughts I had going on, and I've, I've had this for lots of different places, is I love taking landscape shots with some kind of recognizable landscape. Like I'd love to go to Egypt and take a picture of a horned adder with the pyramids in the background. Of course. Yeah. 100%. So, yeah, so my thought here was, you know, Oh, it'd be great to have either you know a viper or whatever. And this this snake was big and impressive, so we held on to him until we came up on a scenic location, and then we took that picture. We ended up finding I think three vipers that day on the Great Wall. We found a Dione on the Great Wall. Uh, we found a Colubr spinalis, which it's no longer Colubr. Um, and then yeah, this rat snake. And for those of you who don't have the book in your hand or maybe haven't looked at it on Amazon and what have you, it's a it's a grandiose picture. It has the rat snake in the foreground on top of, you know, a stone wall with 
the Great Wall of China just cascading off into the distance and all the lush greenery. Mm -hmm. And then it has a bunch of you know Chinese symbols on the side, which I'm assuming say something awesome. And uh, it's just a fantastic cover photo. It's, it's a perfect cover. It was one of my favorite pictures from that trip. Of all the time you spent over there, what's the most common species that you tend to find? Common as in snakes in general or common as in rat snakes? Snakes in general. Snakes in general. Oh, man. Um, beauty snakes are super common. Uh, king rats are super common. Yeah. Dude, it's got to be so cool to find one of those. King rats are world. among my favorite to find. Uh, a couple years ago, and I, I have, I'll send you guys the link later. Um, I have a video on YouTube that I posted where I caught a, like a seven foot, seven foot three, maybe king rat, wow. 86 inches, 88 or 86 inches, wow. however much that comes out to. Um, I mean, this massive snake is, you know, crossing the road. And I mentioned to myself that I don't even think I have a snake bag big enough for it. Um, Trimasurus uh, stegenedri, the green tree viper. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Super, super common. Really? Oh, yeah. I think um, on one of our trips, after just a couple of days, we had around 40 of them. Wow. Observations. You you stop to take a piss, you know, look to your left. There's two of them. Look to your right. There's another one. <laughs> They're always down by the road uh, in ambush waiting for a frog to jump in front of them. Excellent. Uh, we frequently find them with prey in their mouths. Um. Cyclophiops major, the, the greater green snake, basically just a giant version of our green snakes here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Very, very common snake. Hmm. There's a whole bunch that are... Um, oh, I know. I know the very most common, you know, so common that it's basically a trash snake is um, now it's Lycodon uh, rufozonatum, the red-banded wolf snake. It, it used to be Dinodon rufozonatum. Right. Yeah, those guys, I've even found them on campus in downtown Nanjing. Wow. That's awesome. And they, they have the worst attitude of any snake I've ever met. <laughs> None nice. of them are tame. And they will bite, they'll bite inanimate objects. You know, if you, you're tailing them because you don't want to get bit. If, they're, if their head bumps into your shoe or a plastic buckle or a rock, they'll just start latching onto it and, and biting it. Ugh. Crazy nasty attitudes i just i can't i can't fathom just like walking down the nature trail and just a giant coronada just slithers out like <sighs> like that i just can't fathom that you know and then while you're you know picking it up and taking pictures stesna jerai is just sitting there eating a frog like that's just that's just crazy it's awesome you know? yeah yeah no it's some of my most memorable herping trips have been on these different hikes that we've done are those responsible for a majority of the bites there? Uh, Stegenedri? Um, yeah. Yes, they are. And, you know, they're not fatal at all, uh, just painful. Um, you know, it kind of depends on which region of China you're looking at. If you're looking at anywhere from central and south, then yes. Uh, once you get above central, the majority of any bites would be from Goidius. Okay. They don't. Stegenedri doesn't really go that much above the Yangtze River. Um, and, you know, like on Taiwan, they are 
super, super common. And I think that's the most common bite. Now, once you get uh, even further south to Hong Kong area and coastal uh, southern China, that's when stegenedry kind of stops and you get into albo labris. And then they okay. become the bigger uh, contributor to bites. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Have you ever done anything west, like in Yunnan and stuff like that? I've never been west to Yunnan. Um, the furthest west I've ever been is Guangxi, which is the next province over, uh, just east of Yunnan. Um, I've been to Chengdu once, so that's one province west of Hubei. No. In general, um, from Hubei south and Hubei east, that's what I call southeast China. And that has the vast majority of diversity. And that's where the majority of my efforts have been. I do want to visit some of Yunnan, especially. Yeah. But on Yunnan, I'd love to go out to the deserts and you know try to find some stuff that's you know completely different world. Oh yeah. From what I'm used to. You know, the first time I went to a desert in uh in the US, you know, it's like it's like going to a different country. The herpid fauna mm -hmm. is completely completely 100% different. Sure. So, you know, you're finding the most common toad and you're, you know, excited about it because it's something you've never seen before. It's new and fresh. Yeah. So now, uh, Northern and Western China diversity wise are not the best. And so I've been concentrating on the Southeast. Very cool. So what is with the book? <clears throat> What was the deciding factor to focus on just the, the rat snakes? Well, all right. Yeah. Um, so when I signed my contract back in 2017, um, after graduating, got the offer, one of the uh, bullet points in the contract said, um, write a book. I was like, sure. I was planning on doing that anyway. More than happy to make that part of the obligation. At the time, I had a different uh, book in mind. And so for the vast majority of 17, 18, 19, um, I'd been working on this other book, which I'm still working on. And then as my deadline was getting close to the end of my contract, I'm like, huh, you know, there's still so much effort I want to put into this, this first book that I cannot finish this book in time. So... I'm going to switch gears and I'm going to do something that's pretty quick and easy. You know, the rat snakes, rat snakes are cool. They're awesome. A lot of people love them and there's only 19 species. Yeah. You know, the other book I'm working on right now, I think has 99 species. Wow. And so I'm about 75% done with that book. Um, and so I was like, Oh, 19, I can knock that out in two weeks, three weeks. You know, of course that's what you think. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I put the one book on hold and I started working on the rat snakes ba basically in July of last year. Um, and I just got went down the rabbit hole and things were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it became a much bigger monster than I expected it to be. Um, and so that's why I didn't finish it until, you know, last week, basically. But. So the original purpose was I thought it was going to be a quick and easy project. It ended up not being that. And I'm very thankful for that because 
after going down this rabbit hole of some of these species, I now have so many more projects I want to do, especially the, the big one I want to do is focusing on um, the bamboo rat snakes, Porphyracea, Oreocryptophus porphyraceus. That, so, uh, Justin, you said you have the book. Yes. If you, if you turn to page... See, now this is where I feel stupid because, <laughs> you know, I, I messed up my Amazon. Jesus. Turn to page 149 is the beginning. Yep. All right. So that's the beginning of the Porphyracea. And then if you go to 155 or 156, you'll see the map. And, you know, it's yeah. this. I remember that you did a talk not that long ago. Yeah, that's about right. This map. Yeah, and I was I was in that. I was, I was okay. Huh. Um, yeah, this complex is not well defined. You know, traditionally there's been like nine different subspecies, and it's a pretty hard to come by snake. You know, you can't really target them. Mm -hmm. They're kind of like uh, mole kings. Like you can be in the right habitat, but unless they are above ground, you know, you're not going to see them. You just have to be lucky. Right place, right time. Um, and then if you go to the next page over, which is one of my favorite two pages, and turn the book sideways, so you're going to see all the juveniles from the range on the 157 wow. and then all the adults on 158. And I just think there's a lot going on here with this oh, yeah. And so now, because of this book, because of the rabbit hole that I've gone down with this group especially, um, I'm trying to initiate a multi-country, maybe two-year project looking at this complex to try to figure it out. That's awesome. So, yeah, because yeah. I know it's kind of a mess. And I think for a lot of people in the hobby here, you know, that aren't they don't pay a whole lot of attention to the bamboo stuff, you know, to them, a lot of them look exactly alike. And I know crosses are fairly common over here. If you look at the adults. Yeah. If you look at just the, they're all red and black and with black bands with varying degrees of width. And if you don't have a keen eye, a lot of people will be like, Oh, that looks like that. that looks, they all look the same with some minor differences. But then you look at the juveniles, and they're quite different from each other. So, you know, I think that's been part of the reason a lot of these are going back and forth between which subspecies are valid, which ones aren't, mm -hmm. which ones are real. So, yeah, this is the, this is the species I want to work on uh, in the next coming years. Very cool. And has anybody done sort of like a a genetic tree of sorts to see sort of no. what came first and who came first. No. Um, all the work no. for these guys seems to be done um, in their own individual countries, which, you know, you look at this range map, there's, I think about a dozen countries throughout mm -hmm. the range. Um, and each country looks at only their tiny little population. They don't really do any cross country examination. Right. I think is necessary if you want to get the whole picture. Sure, sure. So that's kind of my idea is I've, I've been trying to recruit different people from each of these countries to participate in this uh, data collection. 
And I, you know, it makes sense that you would have Matt involved. Uh, yeah. Just knowing so, how high his standards are as far as, you know, making sure things are what they are, you know, they come from where they come from. I don't think there's anyone more thorough in that than, than Matt. And I'll, I'll tell you what brought me to Matt um, to begin with was, you know, so I, I was working on the book, as I told you, um, and I had done almost everything. And I'm looking at the final product. And for so many of these species, again, because research in China, at least on the natural history aspect of animals, is um, it's not well done. You know, there's lots of work on discovering a new species, but once they discover a new species, they simply say, oh, yeah, you know, the genetics says this is a new species. There it is. You know, they don't do a follow up on, you know, the natural history of how these guys interact and overlap with uh, the ecosystem. So, um, so for the rat snakes, there's not a lot of information on the reproductive care or how many eggs they have or how long it takes for eggs to hatch or anything reproduction or um, sometimes feeding wise is, is unknown for the mm -hmm. wild so I remembered uh, Matt had come to me and Scott a couple years ago about writing up an article on Alafi David Eye because Scott and I found Scott's found a couple of David Eye and I found one David Eye in 2011. Um, and so I said, okay, I'm gonna email Matt and see if he would like to contribute and and fill in the blanks where I have blanks, which is basically reproduction. Almost all my reproduction was a blank. Mm -hmm. And then for many of the species, you know, what they eat was also a blank because there's no natural history studies mm -hmm. for me to get the data from. So yeah, he, um, I sent him a copy. He looked it over. He filled in a ton of information, anything, anything captive or reproductive or feeding more than likely came from him. Wow. It's awesome. See, and that's the perfect merging of the private sector and the academic sector. No. I feel like there's always a divide between the two. Yeah. And, and so many people don't realize how much helpful information we can get from captivity. You know, if, if you're only concentrating on wild studies, a lot of that information is still a mystery. But, you know, if you go to the captive sector, private sector where people are keeping these animals in captivity, you know, you can find a plethora of, of information that you would not know maybe for the next 10 years, depending on what your wild study entails. Yeah. Well, especially when you have a guy like Matt, who's so focused on that in particular, you know, I don't know that you could, you could ask for a, you know, a better, yeah. better connection in that, that sense. Cause yeah. no, you, you, you couldn't. Yeah. I don't know of anybody other than Matt that would that would be able to be that in depth and that detailed with, no, with exactly. that He's he was literally the, the the perfect thing for that in my opinion, and I just think it's interesting too where, you know, someone like yourself, Doc, that has had extensive field work to do this book amongst the other projects that you have, but how many people that have never had the chance to get the field work? Or, or they have the field work, but they're missing that husbandry aspect that they can't even get to the field to try. You know? mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. I agree. So, yeah, I was very, very, very happy with his 
contribution. And as you said, I love the, the merging of the two fields. Yeah, it's unfortunate because, like I said, there's always been kind of a divide, you know, where the private sector looks at the academia and they're like, yeah, those guys are you know, full of it. They got the big expensive piece of paper on the wall. And then you have the academics that are like, yeah, look at all these rednecks keeping all these, <laughs> all these Bowellens pythons and stuff like that. And it's it's funny because I don't know yeah. of any other animal uh, related hobby that has helped with the on the academic side more than reptiles. I mean, fish, I guess, could possibly be up there as a contender, but it seems to me like the private sector and herpeticulture has had a huge hand in in a lot of information that maybe a lot, you know, academics maybe would have never known or never found out because maybe they're going out there and they're just not finding these species. I, I agree completely. Um, you know, on a slightly similar uh, train of thought, my first year there, 06, there's a endangered species of uh, monkey there in Shennongjia called the golden snub-nosed monkey. Orange face, noses up kind of like a bat. Um, and at the time, um, Shennongjia had two populations of these endangered, two troops of the endangered monkey. And they were trying to habituate one of the troops um, to the presence of humans so that we, so there's a blind and they're watching the troop and they would throw out apples every now and then to mm -hmm. bring them in. And um, Craig Stanford, he was the guy that posted the job uh, initially that got me there. He's a primatologist over in California, but his second love is herpetology. And so he was the one that said, hey, here's this mountain range. It's never been looked for with herps. Uh, I'm gonna go there to study the monkeys because that's my job but I'd like somebody else to go there and study the herps. Um, so he showed up that summer and we're in the blind watching these monkeys. And he, so they're kind of semi captive now, I guess you can call, call it because mm -hmm. they're, they're not running away at the sight of humans anymore. Right. They, they, they're acclimated essentially. Yeah. But they're acclimating. Um, and Craig was saying, you know, so Vanessa was the, the grad student in charge of, observing the monkeys for the summer and the social interactions and stuff. He's like, you are getting, you know, so much information that would take years to, to witness all of these different behaviors we're observing now um, because of this semi-captive uh, environment. Whereas, you know, if you just went with a strictly wild approach, he was like, it would probably be a decade of, of effort to collect what you've collected in a couple of months. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's very impressive. I think it also comes down to a lot of the reptile academics happen like yourself, happen to be herbers. So I think that it, it, it's kind of an easy segue. You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. there's, there's yeah. so many academics that, yes, they do field work, but they're, they're, they're indoors. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. as we want to bring it back indoors with us. Yeah. Yeah. And as with most herpers, uh, most of us, at some point in our life, we kept animals. You know, you mm -hmm. keep them as a kid. Oh, yeah. And sometimes later in life, you, you don't. Uh, sometimes you still do. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I think at the most I had was maybe 80 snakes. Now I have two. Um, 
but you know, I, I kind of have two lives, you know, a life in the US and a life in China. And so kind of, it's kind of hard to have a big collection, but um, where was I going with this? Oh, well, my point is, I think most of us had that keeping uh, growing up. And so a lot of us, we still have that passion. Um, I kind of lost my point again. I don't know where I was going with that, but yeah. Uh, Talking about bridging, you know, having academics who happen to be herpers and taking oh, this yeah. stuff. And yeah. I think that's why they're herpers, because that's how you get in interested in the beginning. I mean, yeah. I don't know any academic that was not a herper first and suddenly says, oh, I'm going to study herpetology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, in order to actually want to do that, you would have had to have been a herper growing up. Yeah. I think yeah. the transition is just that that wanting to know more. Yeah. Wanting to dive deeper, wanting to to get into the, you know, the truly scientific aspect of it. Yeah, it's the ultimate yeah. rabbit hole dive. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, originally my intention was to do veterinary medicine and um I was doing so much with herpetology that I was like, "Hey, why don't I just go this route instead? I'd like I'd prefer to be outside for my career versus inside for my career. And herpetology seemed like that, the way to do that. Yeah, man. That's awesome. So what were you keeping before and what are you keeping at the moment? So in the US, well, my one snake that I tried to keep in China was a uh, an anomala, um, but he had a nasty attitude and I'm trying to uh, my girlfriend doesn't like snakes. She's afraid of snakes. And Alan, the anomala had a nasty attitude. So it wasn't a very easy snake to win her over with. You know, if I'm going to win her over with a snake, it needs to be a snake. That's not going to bite her every single time she tries to touch it. So I let Alan go. Um, and here in the U S I have a corn snake that I hatched in 2004. Um, he was from uh, a mother that I found on the road, brought her back. She laid eggs. I let the mother go. I hatched out the eggs. I let all the babies go except for two that had a little abnormality in the um, backside of their spine. Okay. Um, and I gave one of those animals to a friend of mine. Um and then a couple years later, she said she was moving and she couldn't keep that corn snake anymore. So she gave it back to me and I gave that snake to my dad. So that's my dad's corn snake. Cool. Um, and the, uh, the anomalon you're talking, that's like about, right? No, a Laffy, a Laffy oh, anomalon, okay. Okay. the Korean rat snake, if you want to call it the Korean rat snake. Okay. I like that name, but my friend in Korea says he doesn't think they have Korean rat snakes. He doesn't think Korea has a Laffy anomala. Interesting. Um, he thinks they're all shrinky eye. Um, and then my other snake is when I was living in Alabama doing my PhD there, uh, I found a, I'm also a moderator on the Facebook group, um, snake, snake ID or snake identification. Cool. And in September of, I think, I think it was September 13. 
13 or 14, somebody posted a group, uh, a picture onto the snake ID. And it's a, it's a small king snake. And we're going back and forth between, is it a Caligaster or is it a, you know, a, a prairie king or a mole king? Nobody right. could come up with a, a conclusion. And they asked for the location and it was in the city that I was living in. Oh, nice. So I sent the guy a message. I'm like, hey, you know, do you still have the snake? He's like, yeah, it's in my garage right now. So I drove over. And basically, it's a hybrid. It's a, a it's a wild hybrid between a black king snake and a a mole king snake. Very cool. So th those are my two snakes: the corn snake that I uh, hatched in 04, and then this hybrid uh, king snake that I found. Well, I guess somebody else found it in Huntsville, Alabama. Nice, awesome. We love us some corns, especially natural ones. They're the I always tell people if you're going to keep snakes, it's like the Labrador retriever of. Yeah, of that <laughs> yeah. that's a good analogy. I just, I, it doesn't matter if you're East Coast or West Coast. I feel like just corn snakes are the quintessential Americana. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's just like it's the it's the American snake. Those yeah. and rattlesnakes. They're yeah, super. That, yeah. They're super popular in China. Corn snakes. Really. Yep. Indigos, corn snakes, um, pituophis, rattlesnakes. They're really popular right now on the Chinese pet trade. Very cool. Yeah, I follow a lot of uh, uh, a lot of gecko people, mostly out of Hong Kong, and uh, their gecko collections are breathtakingly amazing. You know, stuff from all over the world, and they always just throw in like that one pitiophis, you know, or or that that one corn snake that somebody gave them, and that's crazy, you know, triple quadruple genetics, uh -huh. and it's just crazy to see corn snakes over there you know mm -hmm. yep yep cow kings are also super common or or popular i should say and you know i just kind of laugh how funny it is you know all but it's you know it's new to them it's not new to us so you know that's why corn snakes are last time i remember looking at one at a show is like six dollars <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, it's, it's that classic thing of, you know, their they're corn snakes are six bucks to us because we see them all the time, but we go gaga over Pattaya's, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I love finding corns here, man. Dude, I, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not even a corn, corn snake and I got two. Yeah. You are in corn mecca. The holy land. One, so another one of my favorites, other than king rats, uh, another one that I, always love whenever I find them are Mandarin rats. I mean, they are so beautiful to see like, you how know, far um, into China do those go? Oh, they're almost countrywide. Oh, really? They, they go from, so, you know, if you think of Beijing as being New York, uh, think of Hong Kong as being Miami. Um, Shanghai would be North Carolina. So Nanjing is just west of, um, Shanghai. Um, they Mandarin rats you can find from Beijing all the way into northern Vietnam and all the way east over to Taiwan and all the way west to India. Oh, wow. See, I, I must, I think I got Vietnam and China mixed up as far as the, the limited range for some reason. I thought they were more Vietnamese, but um, go to page. 
113. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Good lord. It's so weird that you can have those those really spotty I know. outlier distribution areas too. Yeah, like that one up in the north. Yeah. All by itself. Yeah, there's also a tiny population of king rats up at that same location. And Scott and I have a theory that because you also have this population up in Beijing and king rats also have the same thing. They have a, a little population there and the beauty snakes also have a tiny little population there. And I think basically there's a mountain range that uh, goes from Beijing and it heads west and then slightly south. Dude, it's yeah, that's a nice, uh, it was a DOR, but oh yeah, you're showing the, the range map. Yeah, it was a DOR. It's just a really big DOR. That's the reason for yeah. this. Still awesome. And how and many how, people keep mandarins over there as in captivity? It's their corn snake. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, think about it. We we had so much trouble over the past couple decades of getting them established, mm -hmm. you know, and, and learning the species, so to speak. I wonder if it was, you know, for lack of a better word, easy for them. I don't know of anybody that keeps them as pets. Really? Yeah, probably, probably for good reason, you know. Um, there is one guy. So, you know, WeChat is their social media. And obviously I have WeChat as well. Um, there is one guy I follow on WeChat um, who does nothing but Carinata. And he has some amazingly beautiful and awesome looking king rats. Like crazy colorations and and patterns. Um that's about the only snake I can think of native that seems to be really popular are, are king rats. Hmm. Interesting. What uh, do they have like uh, nicknames for the king rat over there? The same way that we do here. I mean, our nickname is either king rat or stinking goddess, right? Yes. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard giant rat. I've heard, you know, speckled yellow rat. I've heard singing goddess is my favorite. Yeah. Um, no, they mainly just call it um, Wang Jingshu, which is Wang is king, and Jing Jingshu is the is the rat snake. So king, it's literally a translation of king rat snake. Very cool. And how common are the mandarins when you were out doing studies? Um, if you're in the right habitat or the of the right range, like Wuishan is where I do a lot of my work. I think we found three in a night. Um, but in general, if you spend a week at the right location at a place that has them, you'll turn up one in a week. So, so they're not so common, definitely not common enough that you get tired of them. Mm -hmm. It's always a spectacular find to see one. Um, but I've now found them in you know, multiple locations, so it's not like they're super rare. What was the species you found the least? Ooh, um, I've I've now seen five DOR Azemiops, and that has been one of the ones I've been wanting to find the most. Five, yeah, That's five DORs. Super cool. Were they juveniles? Were they adults? One one was a juvenile. Uh, all the others were adults, and the, and the juvenile was only a couple hours old. Wow, and is it? Is it still as 
altitude and cold as it's made out to be. Yeah. Very cool. Yep. Uh, a friend of mine found one moving, um, crossing the road in, I think, February when the, it was like 11 degrees Celsius, which is... Uh, 50, uh, 51 degrees, 52 degrees, and it, and it was active on the road at night. That's crazy. Wow. Um, Super cool. As far as alive, I'm trying to think. what. That's actually, that's a species I had on my radar to talk to you about tonight because, yeah. Yeah. yeah, they're just they're just awesome animals, man. I've only had the privilege of working with one, and unfortunately, that animal, uh, everyone told my friend, oh, you're not going to be able to keep it alive, and it's going to die, and blah, blah, and he had it for a good year and a half almost two years and they had a horrible power outage and the entire room overheated and he lost all his animals but Oof. the time that he had that animal dude what an impressive species what a wonderful species they're they're so strange um very i i hear yeah i hear they're hard to keep alive i hear they dehydrate quickly um and they spend all their time you know hiding basically yeah he kept it uh he had a, a, a stack of vision cages that was maybe six cages tall. And he had it on the very bottom packed full of fake vegetation. Like literally you could not put your hand in there. That's how full of vegetation it was. And uh, he kept it room temperature with no lights of any kind. And he would put a frozen thawed hopper mouse right in front of the glass. And it, it would be gone an hour after he put it there. And that's just how he kept it. You know, he, he only worked with it for, for cage maintenance. And uh, But, dude, what an, what an impressive, amazing species. I was obsessed with them as a kid. There was an yeah. article in, in one of the All Venomous Issues of Reptiles where they, they did a story on Dr. Fry, and they had a picture of one in there. And that was kind of when I think they hadn't – they were fairly new uh, to people, like, keeping them at all. I think they had been discovered, and that was about it. And – I just remember seeing the pictures and how interesting those were because they're shaped like a viper. They have the nine plate head arrangement of an elapid, but I don't, I don't, I mean, are they still considered front fang? Oh yeah. Yeah. They have front fangs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, supposedly their venom is really weak. Uh, a friend of mine that has a zoo in South Carolina, he says whenever he takes people behind the scenes, for photographs, some of those people would just reach in and and pick them up because they're not worried about the venom, which, you know, you and I were talking about this earlier about how people tend to underestimate the mm -hmm. severity that some snakes can uh, deliver. Oh, yeah. But, um, you know, Leonard Fay was the original person to find that species, and he also picked it up thinking it was a harmless snake because of the, the scale arrangement on the head and it just doesn't look like a viper. It looks yeah. like a hybrid. Right, right. Um, so another probably, so, you know, I, I found five of those guys DOR, but the one snake that I've only found, I guess I've seen two of them now, but I've only caught one. And this is among my favorite of all finds was a king cobra, of course. Wow. Down, down in Hong Kong, we found a nine footer. Wow. Very cool. And the, the Chinese ones are the ones that tend to be darker, right? Uh, yeah, Chinese cobras, they're pretty much black, and but you can have some individuals with 
Oh, you're talking about Chinese kings. Kings. Yeah. Um, no, they're highly banded. Highly banded. Yeah, our uh, our good friend Henry, he's a, a King Cobra aficionado of sorts, and you know he has he, he's on the WeChat, and he has copious amounts of friends overseas that send him all kinds of pictures and data and stuff, and it, it's crazy because he'll send me four or five snakes that look completely different, and <laughs> they'll all be from the same neck of the woods. It's crazy. Wow, I've I've never found one in mainland China. Um, they're super rare in mainland China. I've only I've seen two now in Hong Kong. The one we caught, uh, the other was a young adult that was maybe three feet, and he got away before we could catch him. Still awesome. Yeah, still it was is one of those times when you know you want to because you knew where he was, you knew it was basically impossible to catch him. Otherwise, you risk falling fifty feet down a cliff. Um, <laughs> times that you have to just say, I'm just going to look at it and appreciate it. And, and watch it slither away. Oh, yeah, 100%. Is there anything there that's protected? Like that the Monk government is super, super weird about that you doing anything with? Yeah, Monchinensis has the same level of protection as uh, pandas. So oh. that's been part of my uh, issue with doing the radio telemetry because, you know, it involves surgery. And regardless of how experienced the vet is, yeah. Accidents happen, and sometimes your animal will die from complications. And according to their law, any le any animal that's level one protection, such as the panda, if you're caught killing a panda, you can get the death penalty. Wow. <laughs> so you don't play around. <laughs> so technically, I guess you know if one of my research animals were to die, they might say, "Oh, you you killed this." level one protected animal. So that's one reason why I haven't been given permission to work on them yet, because they are paranoid about a research animal dying, which I understand. So I'm trying to work on workarounds such as using external transmitters that don't involve surgery. But yeah. um, so Monchinensis is highly protected. Um, otherwise, I think that's it. Yeah, there's there's a there's a rumor going around that the I don't know, for lack of a better word zoos in China have been breeding Manchinensis so much and they are so prolific that they're basically giving away offspring to other zoos around the world. It is that true? And could you have used one of those? Yeah, I, I didn't know if that was true. And you could use one of those animals, and it wouldn't be as. Uh, bad god forbid something happened to it opposed to a wild specimen yeah i thought about that too we've we've talked about so um dr chen he's he's doctor as in a medical doctor um he's the original guy that discovered that species oh, and wow. uh, he's missing many of his fingers from bites from monchinensis but um so he he grew up as a or his career was medical doctor and i think in 1989 or 88 uh, a patient came in that said he had been bitten by the snake. He described it. He couldn't recognize it. And then he spent like the next five years trying to find the snake that this patient had been bitten by. Eventually he found it and it was the Monchonensis viper and it was described as a new species, etc. cetera. Um, and even back then uh, they were determined to be pretty rare um, and they were protected pretty quickly. Um, 
he then quit his job as a medical doctor and uh, started working for the nature reserve as a conservation um, ranger, essentially. He just wanted to protect this species and you know make sure it doesn't go extinct. Um, awesome. So, so he's still there at the nature park, nature reserve, and he has a couple of specimens that are in captivity when you go into the museum there. And he breeds them and he lets the babies go um, back into the wild. And so, yes, one of our thoughts has been to say, hey, how about we you know, put a transmitter on one of these juveniles or maybe you hold back one or two of them and keep them for a year so that they put on some size and then we use one of those. So it's still in discussion. Do they know about how many there are in the wild? Uh, last estimation was 500. Wow. I was going to say that. I think there's more than that in captivity. I would say so, yeah. I know San Diego has a pretty big population. I think there's a zoo in Texas that has a pretty decent population. Um, here in North Carolina, we had a couple of them, but I think they eventually went to San Diego to help with their stock. So what do you think the like their struggle is? Because if they're that prolific, then I mean, yeah. theory, you would think they wouldn't be. Yeah, I know. So um, on this Monchonensis project, um, Conrad Miebert, he's helping out on the project. He does a lot of Viper stuff in Europe and he's helped, you know, a lot of species that were previously considered critically endangered. He's discovered new populations that expands the population by five times the range and, and the numbers. And so he has the same mentality. He's like, yeah, you know, they say it's this rare, but you know, this animal has been living here for millions of years the chances of it being as rare as they say, he doesn't believe. He thinks they are probably in the surrounding mountains. And so that's part of our efforts has been to try to find new populations of this species. But, you know, in order to get the best data, um, you need to see more of the species in action. You need to see the habitat they're using, uh, how much, you know, Dr. Chen says, the adults spend about 60% of the time up in trees, sometimes 30 to 40 feet up. And, wow. and that's why a lot of people don't see them. That's a um, big snake to be. Yeah. Up, right. Yeah. And they're pretty much just bird eaters, at least as adults in, in, in the wild, you know, you'll see lots of videos of them uh, caudal luring as adults, which, you know, there's not that many, snakes out there as adults that caught a lure yeah. unless you're yeah. unless you're attacking birds right yeah, um these are so but yeah. so wild they are I, I really hope one day we can get a project going with them and you know hopefully extend their population such that they're not as threatened as they are perceived to be so j just going back to rat snakes for a moment, um, was there any species in the book that gave you, I don't want to say the most difficulty, but in terms of gathering data or photos or what have you? There, there, there are two. Okay. There's two. Let me uh, look at the table of contents and refresh my memory. Um, well, actually, there's more than two, but uh, the two I'll 
talk about are uh, Archilafi Anam or Bella, the oh yeah, the beautiful rat snake or elegant rat snake or whatever. Those things are sweet. Um, yeah, page thirty-one. And the only reason I was able to get really any images whatsoever is because of Matt um, and 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 captivity. You know, again. Wow. If I was relying on just wild images, uh, there would have been two. A yeah. picture of a EOR and a picture of a kind of a drab one from Yunnan. Okay. Um, and, you know, these guys, they were, you know, discovered in 1917 at one of my study sites. And they pretty much had barely been found elsewhere. They've been renamed a couple of times. But not a lot of information is known about them um, in the wild. They're, they're basically like our tricolors, like a milk snake. Hmm. Since you don't have the book in front of you, you can't. Yeah, I actually, <laughs> I just, I just, I just Googled because I remember, I remember it being drab brown or with like, with like yellow bands. And I, I just, as, as adults in some, in some regions, especially like India, uh, yeah. yeah, they're not, and, and it's kind of like our milk snakes too. You know, Eastern yeah. milks as babies, they're super beautiful. Right. And then as they get older, they're, they're drab brown. Yeah. And I, I just Googled it just to refresh my memory. And like some of these babies I'm seeing, they are just stellar. I know. The crazy head patterns. Uh, so that one was a tough one. And then the second most, actually probably more tough, um, Justin, if you go to page 121, is the uh, the pearl the pearl banded rat snake? It's um, Perlaceus. It's the mm -hmm. Mandarin. It's the only other uh, rat. So same genus as Mandarin rats. And for a long time, people kind of thought that this was just a color phase of yeah. man rats. And part of the reason they thought that was, again, this snake went, let's see, he was what, found in 1927. And I don't think another specimen was found again until the 80s or the 90s. Wow. So that's another one that has that sort of weird satellite population. Yep. Like, what do you think? That seems to be a pretty common trend with, with the majority of these species. What do you think the, like, that's well, all about? You look at, natural look at barriers? No, if you look at that distribution, you'll see there's a, um, it's not super clear, but there's a mountain range and it kind of curves to the right. And all of those dots are on the same mountain range. Okay. Um, yeah. I think it's just a lack of people looking. You know, I can, pretty much guarantee you if you go and to that mountain range in between those dots and put in enough effort, I think you'll find these guys in those locations. And uh, the other, yeah. the other trend I'm noticing is like really hardcore terrain. Oh with pretty serious grades. That's got that. I'm exhausted. Just looking at <laughs> the, I can feel myself sweating. The, the, you know, in Shenongjia, which is central Hubei. And, um, it's funny Conrad recently sent me a PDF about um, terrain roughness. And then mm -hmm. wh whoever did this used ArcGIS to model um, basically terrain and determine how hard it is to 
to walk in that terrain. And the vast majority of China was like in the, the dark purple coloration with regard to terrain roughness. Yeah, whenever you're herping there, especially if you're herping a mountain area, the vast majority of your herping is limited to walking on the road because you look to the left and it's straight up. Yeah, you look I was gonna say, right almost straight, up. straight down. Crazy. It's anywhere there's flat land has usually been occupied by people. Or yeah, I, I imagine that there's a lot of populations of species that are probably right there, but they're just out of reach because of, you know, you can't traverse it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, there's so much of the landscape that you cannot physically traverse. Now, have you ever noticed a, I don't want to say subalpine population, but, you know, it's, it's easy for us to say, oh, it's at 6,000 foot of elevation, but it looks like it's normal. We just happen to be at 6,000 feet up. Is there ever a case where you're at, say, 100 feet or 200 feet, but the, the top of the foothill is, say, 1,000, and that, you know, higher up, is there a differential between species in that regard or not? I think I'm comprehending your question. Um, say it one more time, rephrase a so, little bit. Are, yeah, so so basically if I've got a species that's quote-unquote subalpine or higher elevation than normal, even though the area where we would be walking, like you said, the roads are a lower elevation, is there a chance that if you could scale that straight vertical incline, they would be sitting right above your head? Or is, oh, it, yeah. or is it in the case of you have to physically keep going up in elevation to get to that point? No, it, it could be if you just scaled right up there, it, it, it could be there. I got you. We just, we can't do it, so we don't know. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the first um, species I kind of nailed down really quickly uh, in Shandongjia again, back in 06, was Protobothrops uh, jordani, Jordan spit viper. Awesome. Um, awesome too. Gorgeous, gorgeous snakes. That's the one I got bit by in uh, 2012. Um, but these guys, I was basically able to nail them down to a T such that, you know, as long as I'm above 1,500 meters, which, you know, once you're in China, you start learning what 1,500 meters is. Now that I've been back in the U.S. for a while, now I kind of forget what it is. <laughs> um, so 1,500 meters is um, 1,700 feet. So as long as you're above 1,000 – oh, wait. That's yards. I was going to say it seems like it should be more than that. Uh, feet. It's like 5, I was going to say. 1,500 5, meters is 5,000 feet. Um, so once you're above 5,000 feet, you are now beginning to be in the – um, the habitat of Jordani, and I have found them as high as what, 20, 8,500 feet. Wow. Um, but anyway, as long as I was above that threshold, I could basically look at the landscape and say, yes, there's going to be a Jordani over there. Uh, you know, given this time with the sun, et cetera, if, if there is one, it's going to be over there. And more often than not, I go to that rock slide and, and yeah, there's a Jordan that takes off and heads off into the rocks. 
that, so that, that explains a lot of us having difficulty keeping them in South Florida at, you know, two foot <laughs> of elevation. <laughs> Negative elevations are actually under the sea level. Right, right. That's that's one of my biggest fears, like traveling, going herping, is getting bit by something and then having to get treated in another country that I am extremely yeah. unfamiliar with. Um, I mean, I it wasn't a nightmare for me because I knew the species wasn't that bad, but um, but all my friends treated it as if I was going to lose my arm. Um, it was it was an inter interesting situation. So we're, we're walking in the habitat place that I've been a thousand times before. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'd caught tons of Jordan and I, and they all behave the same way. My Chinese friend is in front of me. He's afraid of snakes. He, he yelps, jumps up into the air and runs away. And so, you know, I know there's a snake in front. So I run up. I it's, see your bird, it's your bird dog. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 if we're in the U.S., it would be mom. You know, if you put yeah, her yeah. in front, she always finds the snakes. Of course. Um, so, you know, I run up and I see the the tail of a Jordanite going into its rock pile. They always hang out in these rock piles. And 90% of the time, 95% of the time, they dive deep down into the rock pile. So usually, in the past, I would be able to grab the tail to prevent it from continuing to go down into the rock pile and then, you know, get my snake hook out and slowly pull it back and, and control the head. When yeah. You're not, you're not yoinking it out of the rock pile. You're giving yeah. it resistance so that it slowly backs itself out. Yeah. So that, that was my thought process, but so I, I reach down for the tail and I see a flash of, of snake come out from the rock. And so I, I jerk my hand back real quick. And so I realized what had happened is he didn't go down into the rock pile that he just went under that rock and basically brought his head back out into the, uh, to the entrance and was just pulling his body in. So I, I flipped the top rock, I pin him and, and I catch him. And my friend that was with me from the U S doing an internship, he's like, did it get you? I, I was like, no, it didn't get me. He's like, well, isn't that blood on your knuckle? And you know, I look at my knuckle and I'm like, oh shit. Uh, yeah, I guess he wow. did get home. Damn. I'm like, okay, well, um, here, let me put him out here in the open. You can get your photographs. And I'm just going to sit down and see if I feel any mm -hmm. reaction. Yeah. Um, so Evo starts taking pictures of the snake. And after about five minutes, I feel uh, a movement go down my chest. And I'm like, okay, yeah, it's not a dry bite because my Chinese friends are flipping out. I'm like, you know, let's give it five minutes. Let's see what happens. And so, yeah, I feel a flush. I guess your chest gets flush. Um, I'm like, yeah, it's not a dry bite. So let's go ahead and start heading back to the car. Um, as we're walking to the car, I start getting lightheaded as if I'm drunk or um, in a dream. Um, I, I need help walking because it's again as if I was drunk basically um, so we get back to the car and I lay down in the back seat and my Chinese friend ties so he bit me on my let me see if I can show this on my right knuckle that's a, a tattoo of the bite if you can see it yeah 
Um, Must have been a decent size one then. I mean, it's a pretty. It was about uh, spread. It was about a meter. Okay. So three, what, three point three feet? Yeah, I think three inch range. Um. Uh, so my friend puts a tourniquet on my arm, which I immediately untie. And then he ties it again, which I immediately untie again. I'm thankful that right. even though I was like half drunk at that time, I could still remember to untie it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they all jump in the car and they start speeding away. And where we are, we're about three hours away from the closest thing that you would even remotely call a hospital. And wow. it's, it's really not. Um, so we're driving and after about 30, 45 minutes, uh, I finally am lucid again. I, I kind of wake up and I'm like, okay guys, you know, uh, I'm, I'm good. I feel good. Uh, let's go back and, and finish our, our survey. I'm like, no, 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 no. We're, we're driving you to, um, Muyu, And if they can't help you, uh, we're going to drive you to Shingshan, which is the, I guess, the closest hospital, which was another hour away, so four hours total. And they're like, if they can't help you, we're going to drive you to Yichang, which is a six-hour drive. And then they're like, if Yichang can't help you, we're going to drive you to Wuhan, which from Yichang, Wuhan is another six to eight hours. And wow. then they're like, and then they're like, if that doesn't help, if they can't help you, then uh, we're going to put you on a plane to take you, you to just die. Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> we'll just leave you on the side of the road, and we're out of options. I'm like, I'm like, guys, this is not that big of a deal. I was like, you know, all all I need is some fluid, and um, and time, and and this will, out. this will, yeah, work itself out. But they're like, no, 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 no. So they took me to this uh, tiny hospital, um, about four hours drive later and you know the doctors ask me questions about the snake we show him pictures i describe it i tell him it's not that big of a deal he's like well i'm sorry we don't have anti-venom here um so we'll just give you you know these other meds which i was fine with i was like good because i don't want anti-venom um and so they gave me traditional chinese medicine and i'll, I'll talk about that uh on the, the next day Okay, so I spent the night at that place. Um, next day, my arm is swollen, uh, about to my elbow. And they're like, okay, we're going to take you to Yichang, which is the, that's where the Three Gorges Dam is, if you've ever heard of that. Biggest yeah. dam in the world at the moment. Um, and Yichang had a, a, a really big, proper hospital. So they took me there. So that was you know, a six-hour drive. So by, by the time I arrive in Yichang, it's been 24 hours now since the bite. Um, I get in. I'm going to skip over the interesting things that happened on that, unless you want me to. I don't know if you want me to make this yeah. long. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, man. All right. This well, is not a bite uh, report we get to hear about often because yeah, you're, you're the, no one gets you're, you're one of two people that I personally now know. Uh, who have been bit by protobothrops. And I think it's very interesting because everyone is so, everyone hears the horror stories of Flavoviridis mm -hmm. that they just assume that everything in the genus is going to be as, you know, extravagant as Flavoviridis. So first thing is during the entire process, 
experience, there was never any pain. Zero pain from the bite, zero pain 30 minutes later, an hour later. Uh, there was never any discoloration. Um, you know, I, I obviously, as a scientist, I wrote everything down at each minute. When I could no longer bend my hand, when swelling was such and such, I would do capillary refill times on my fingers. Um, and I, I took extensive notes. But yeah, never was there any uh, pain involved in the in the Jordanine bite. The only effect it had was swelling. Um, on on me at least. Um, all right, so we arrive at Yichang, and when you get into a Chinese hospital, the first thing you have to do is you have to pay a, a deposit of two thousand uh, yuan, which is their currency, of course. So that is $300. You have to pay a deposit of $300. And then as you're being treated, they chip away at that $300. Um, but my ATM card wasn't working. So the nurse who was in charge of me, she's like, I'll, I'll lend you $2,000 or 2,000 yuan. Um, and then you can just pay me back later. So I was like, wow. okay. That's very cool. Very, very cool. nice. But okay, great. Uh, so she did that, and I get admitted, and the doctor comes in and asks me all the questions, and I fill him in, and he's like, um, okay, uh, we're going to give you some antivenom, and I said, no, I don't want antivenom. He's like, well, why not? I was like, well, a number of reasons. One, this species isn't deadly, and so that's not really necessary. Two, it's now been 24 hours after the bite. Yeah. You know, the damage has been done. Um, the antivenom is not going to neutralize anything else that's in my system. And I was like, just out of curiosity, uh, could you please show me the antivenom you would give me? He's like, yeah, sure. Uh, he's like, you're going to have to sign a waiver, by the way, that says you are refusing treatment. Fine, I'll sign it. So he brings me this bottle and it says, uh, Gloideus antivenom, horse derived. And I was like, I was like, okay, you know, thank you for showing me. You know, I think we stopped using horse-derived antivenom maybe in the 80s. I, I don't know. But I know it's been a while since we've used horse-derived antivenom. And, of course, it was for a different genus. Yeah. It was um, I was like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not going to do it. And he's like, uh, I, I told him how I would treat me because I worked in veterinary medicine for 10 years prior to all of this. And we get, you know, snake bites all the time for dogs right. and cats. And so, you know, I said, you know, give me um, dexamethasone, prednisone and IV fluids. And if you want, give me some antibiotics, but antibiotics are shown to be probably useless. Yeah. At this point, it's, it's just a waste of juice. Yeah. Um, and he's like, okay. He's like, but just so you know, he's like, yes, I agree. You know, it's been 24 hours and antivenom is best if it's immediate. He's like, but just so you know, many people will come in three days after being bitten by a snake and we give them antivenom and they get better. And I'm like, well, yeah, you could give them orange juice and they would get better. Yeah. You know? yeah. You're, yeah. you're correlating the wrong things here. Right. Um, and so I said, no, I don't want the antivenom, but but thanks anyway. Um, he's like, okay, well, we're going to give you traditional Chinese medicine, snake bite, traditional 
Chinese medicine for snake bite. I was like, fine. As long as it's not antivenom, you can do whatever you want. And so they bring out these pills and they start crushing them up and adding some saline to make it into a paste. And then they slather this paste uh, all over my arm and it's a black paste. So if you see a photo of it, which it's on the field hurt form, it looks like my whole arm has gone gangrene, basically. Oh. It looks like it's going to fall off or something. Wow. But it's, it's just the medicine that they put on. It's basically like mud. Um, and so I'm like, okay, so tell me, what is this doing to my body? You know, is it creating a osmotic pressure difference and somehow drawing out the swelling? You know, what's it doing? It's traditional Chinese medicine. Yes. Okay. I know. Uh, but what is it doing to me? I don't understand. It's traditional Chinese medicine. Yeah. We've never questioned it. We don't know. I, I, I know yeah. that. I just want to know physically what is it doing to my body? It's traditional Chinese medicine. <laughs> I was like, okay, fine. That It's traditional Chinese medicine. Thanks. And I also had to eat a couple of the pills. Um, and then later I asked what the ingredients were. And it was uh, pieces of toad, pieces of centipede, flowers, and herbs. Wow. Just like that's, mom used to make. That's fantastic. Um, yeah. Uh, later on, I'll, I'll send a, a picture of it. That's great. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I was at this hospital, the, the big Ichang hospital, um, for a day and a half. And I had a conference to attend on, on one of the days. Um, so let's see, that was day one. That night, yeah, this was also funny. That nurse that loaned me the 2,000 yuan, um, later that night, she's like, hey, do you want to go out to dinner? And I was like, you know, aren't I in the hospital, like with IV and whatnot? Am I able to just go out for dinner? And she's like, oh, yeah, sure. So <laughs> that's fantastic. So I get unhooked and we go out to dinner and she's like, do you want a beer? And I'm like, I'm a patient getting medicine. <laughs> like you tell me you're the nurse. Can I yeah. have a beer? And she's like, Oh yeah, I think a beer is fine. I was like, okay. Nice. So I had a beer. It, it was very, it was a very interesting interaction. Um, and yeah, she helped Evo and I get train tickets to get to our next location, which is where the conference was. And so she's like, um, I think the next day the doctor said, um, I don't know, maybe I said I needed to leave the next day. I need to be discharged the next day because I needed to catch a train to get to my conference. He's like, oh, no, we need you to be here for uh, 10 days. I was like, no. I was like, the conference is, you know, the day after tomorrow. I need to leave uh, tomorrow. And he's like, okay, you'll need to sign another waiver again. But I, I spent a total of... I think two and a half days in the hospital. Um, Meanwhile, everything had stopped around the what 30, 35 hour mark. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Um, uh, after uh, one week, well, eight days, technically eight days, I had full 100% recovery, full mobility, everything. Um, yeah, they, they sent me home with some oral antibiotics. We took pictures because I was the first foreigner to ever be in that hospital. Wow. And one of the doctors, he's like, the only reason you survived is because you're a foreigner and foreigners are really strong. He's like, if you were <laughs> Chinese, you would have been dead. Wow. 
That's a but, great story, man. That's awesome. And, and so I got the tattoo to remind myself because every time you know I sign my name, I see it. It's a reminder not to do what I did again. Not, yeah. not you know, 90% of the time, the Jordan and I do this one behavior, but at least one of the times they they didn't do their standard hey, behavior. Phil, yeah, Phil talks about that all the time. You know, yep. you can plan for A, B, and C, but then the snake does D and you're not ready. You know, that's yeah. Yep. It's crazy, man. So uh, two and a half days with all the various medications I received and treatment, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, my bill was $250. Wow. wow. And I, I was telling them if I got bit in the U.S. and went through the exact same procedure, my bill would probably be around $3,000, I would guess. Yeah, that's crazy. Now, awesome story. Awesome the story. rock piles that you're finding those in, though, are they like moss covered to match? Like, yep. They're very usual. odd colored snake, like odd pattern, odd color. Clearly, there's yeah, some sort they're, of they're necessity for that. that. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Do you, um, have you ever seen a, a Dick Visser's book from Edition Chimera? Uh, what's the title of the book? Uh, I, think, I think it's just called Asian Pit Vipers. Ah, somebody has been posting that recently on Facebook saying that there was a free download. Yes, it is on my computer yeah. and my phone. Yeah, so I, I did download it. So uh, that book is, uh, for, for guys like me that are just enamored with this stuff, it is the quintessential Asian pit viper Bible, for lack of a better word. Um, hmm. And uh, the book is massive. It's like that thing. Yeah, it's 360 something pages long. Yeah, and you can tell that, that Visser took decades to choreograph and write it correctly because some of the photos are, are very, very old. I would say maybe even like 70s or 80s. But then there's a ton of new stuff that is up to date in terms of taxonomy and that kind of thing. But he has very, very articulate sketch drawings or, or, or uh, taxonomic illustrations, mm -hmm. if you will of the different Jordani patterning. And I was huh? going to ask you which of the ones that you found, was it the traditional, you know, yellow with the red dots or. I'm pulling up a picture right now. I'm hoping I can uh, add the link into the little chat window here. Can I? Yeah. If you want on the bottom of the screen, it'll say share. You can click share and just do screen share. And then Justin can, can share it to oh. all of us. Uh, share screen. Is the screen now sharing? Mm, not yet. It usually has you pick a, like a window or a tab. Let me go back to that. Oh, I see what you're talking about. Because um, uh, the other Jordan I bite I've heard of the individual did not have a great outcome. Really? Like they they died. No, let me not share that one. Really? Yeah. Yeah, and I have a friend who was who was bit by Flavoviridis and it did not go well at all. Obviously it's a completely different animal, but his body did not react well at all. All right. Should be sharing. There we go. God, those things are cool. Oh yeah, that's it's way more green than I've seen. That's gorgeous. So that's a straight up uh, Xantho uh, Melanus, the red spotted. Yeah, awesome. 
And look at it. It matches the needles in the moss perfectly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll definitely need to share this at some point so that when people listening can see what we're looking at. Dude, like, remember that soda Surge? Oh, yeah. yeah like, if if Surge was a snake, it'd totally be one of those, man. <laughs> wow, so somebody died from a Jordanite bite. From what I understand, yeah. It was, it's, was it was it a, a, um, it was it a third party by chance? Uh, no, from what I understand, they were free handling it and wow. got whacked, and it was an older individual. And wow, did not go well. But well, it's like Brian Cox always says foreign protein is foreign protein, you know? it's mostly hearsay, so take it for what you will. But yeah, I, I'm trying to uh publish uh my bite. I submitted it to Toxicon, I think, um, but I need to make some revisions because, again, I, I documented everything. I have all the blood work, and I figured you know such information would be useful for for those people that study snake bites. Mm -hmm. Especially, I mean, that's always the stuff I'm most interested to hear about is the species that no one ever really gets bit by. Yeah, and yeah, yeah to my knowledge, there are no case studies of a Jordanai snake bite. And the the second one that you guys are describing is the only other bite I've ever heard of. Mm -hmm. Documented wise. Right. Super cool, man. An amazing story. An, an eclectic story. I like it. <laughs> so is there a reason, like you mentioned the going back to rat snakes, the, the David eye. Yeah. Are those particularly hard to find? Is that... Well, um, they they have been. Uh, what was kind of funny is <clears throat> in 2011, so, you know, 2008, I met Scott. 2011 was my next trip to China. And basically from, from the time I met Scott, I now, you know, he's a great friend now. Um, and in those early years, every single time I went to China, I'd bump up to Beijing and hang out with Scott for a couple of days. Usually we'd go hit the great wall, go do that exact same hike. We always do. And in 2011, he's like, Oh yeah. You know, uh, last year I found two David, I, uh, one at this spot, one at another spot, you know, let's, let's just do this hike and maybe we'll get lucky. And so we do the exact same hike that we did in 08. And what, the, the way this hike is laid out, you if you look at the book, you see those big guard towers every so yeah. uh, frequency. <clears throat> so usually uh, we take a rest in those big guard towers. You can sit on one of the windows and there's a nice breeze. Um, you know, have some water, have a snack if, if you have any snacks with you. Um, so we make our first initial incline hike, which is pretty damn steep. And <clears throat> we get to the guard tower and I start walking to the, uh, to the window that is my favorite window. And as I'm walking over there, I pass some baby birds, a bird nest, uh, that's nested inside the guard tower. Um, and they're squawking, squawking. And anyway, Scott's like, okay, you know, when you get out to your little ledge, he's like, look down at the ground below and, and, you know, you might see a gloideus or, you know, hopefully a David eye. Um, so I'm just taking in the scenery, taking in the experience. And I look to my left and on this tiny little ledge, this tiny little lip of the guard tower, 
is a David eye that's slithering directly towards me. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, you know, we've only been here for like 30 minutes and I'm just, you know, taking a siesta basically sitting and taking in the view. I look to my left and here's the target species that we're looking for coming to me. And I'm like, that's and awesome. this is my, you know, my first attempt at looking for a David eye. It's the first time I'd ever really heard of one, you know, until Scott had told me about them. I didn't even know about them. Um, and so I'm like, you know, Scott, David, I, he's like, you're kidding. And I'm like, no, no. And I'm like, just stay there. Cause right now it's out of reach. And I'm like, it's right here on the windowsill basically. And it's slithering towards me. And so eventually, you know, it gets close enough for me to grab it. I grab it and it's a, a young, young adult. And I'm like, you know, I bet you anything, he's climbing this guard tower looking for birds. And so I'm like, you know, let's see. And so, you know, while he's still in my hands, I walk him over to the bird nest and hold him up in front of the bird nest. And he just latches <laughs> onto that third bird and That's just starts awesome. gobbling it down. Dude, rat snakes are best. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. I love how it didn't even like it didn't even stop. It was like, yeah, there's yeah, someone over no. here, but I don't even care. Yeah, I'm right. getting this, I'm getting this bird. I mean, I could not believe it. And so ever since then, um, all of our many, many, many uh, follow-up attempts to find a David I have been unsuccessful. So initially I was like, oh, oh yeah. So if you look at, uh, obviously some of those bird pictures are in here. Uh, so go to page 65. That's what I'm looking at right now. And I was yeah. actually curious about that radiograph picture. Yeah, that's that's Matt's picture. And so Scott had tried to keep these guys in Beijing. And um, he said they were kind of difficult to get to feed. You know, he has a picture down at the bottom of one eating a hamster. Mm -hmm. um, but we eventually came to the conclusion that they love birds and bird eggs. And they apparently love them so much that their spine, just like the African egg-eating snakes, is evolved to crush uh, bird oh, eggs. Okay. Wow. So, so that's what those uh, ridges are yeah. on the um, dorsal side of the spine there. They're meant to crush the eggs. Very cool. They're pretty heavily keeled looking too. From the They are. So there's only two snakes, two rat snakes, two Asian rat snakes that are heavily keeled. That's Carinata. The king rat and David Eye. And so we also think that king rats and David Eye are probably uh, closely related to each other. And, yeah, the other and you can kind of see it in the face a little bit, like the sort of the eye, the larger ish well, eyes and that, uh, that sort of I, short nose. I don't think Carinata should be a laffy. So go to page 57 and look at that eye on page 57. Right. What rat snake do you know of that has a cat eye? Rhino rats. That should okay. not be in. That should not be in Ganyasoma. <laughs> well, no, they shouldn't be in Alafi, and they're not in Alafi. Oh yeah, I agree. They should. I think they should be <laughs> Rhinochophus. Stevie Wonder decided to sort those things out. Yeah, but I mean, there is no other Alafi to my knowledge that has yeah. a elliptical pupil. And in my opinion. King rats, they look like a mixture between Pituophis, 
um, Lampropeltis and Alafi. You know, they hiss. They're heavily keeled. They love eating other snakes. Yeah, the next page, 59, has one eating a Dynakistrodon. Yeah, I saw that picture. That was awesome. That's cool. That's a, I mean, it, I, it's hard to kind of get a reference as far as size, but that Dynakistrodon is not small. No. I, the king rat, you know, they're not my photos, but that king rat is probably a six-footer, and the Dynakistrodon is probably a four-footer. I'm I'm, per, I'm extremely partial to the bimaculata. Section. That's one species I've never found. I've never found a bimac. Really? No. No, I've only seen where I live. I've only seen one photo. Someone found one on the road. Um, I've never seen one. I don't know why I have an interest in those more than I do the the Dion's, but yeah, I mean they're almost they're almost identical. Right. And, you know, part of the issue with Bimaculata versus Dione is, you know, look look at that range map on 53. On the upper range map, that's what the Chinese book indicates. Mm -hmm. And I, I mentioned it somewhere in here. Um, somebody said that they think um, all the specimens north of the Yangtze River were probably misidentified, and those were probably Dione. Um and they think Bimaculata only lives south of the Yangtze River. So that's why I added the other map. I mean, do we know how far removed they are from one another? No, I I, I don't. I'm not a genetics person. Um, and I don't know if somebody has done. I imagine somebody has. It's so wild to me how the head on those, uh, well, the Dionys, uh, looks like a corn. Yeah, I know. I don't know if Phil can see that one, but oh yeah, it's very corn shaped. Like and that then, one looks then... looks like a ghost corn. Like if you, yeah. But I also think that a lot with the Dione and more so with the David Eye or David, excuse me, they have that pronounced brow line that the Carnata has that you don't see in a lot of other rat snakes. You know what that's I mean? True. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Very true. I just when I think yep. of you know, king rats, I just think of that that menacing brow line, you know. Mm -hmm. I just love how goofy the uh, bamboo rats look. Ah, I love them. I Man feel rats. so I feel Man so bamboo. lame because I'm going off of like memory right now, and you guys yeah. flipping <laughs> through the book, <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, one really. Um, thankful photo I got from this. So page 97. Um, I found this photo on iNaturalist and, you know, messaged the photographer, asked him if I could use it. It's a Mullendorf's rat snake who's upside down crawling on a ceiling hunting for bats. Wow. In, in a cave in Vietnam. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually, I'm glad you brought that up because that is my next rat snake species. Uh, I was gifted one by my late mentor and it was geriatric and it went up passing away. And last year in Daytona, somebody had them. And that's that's this year's next rat snake. Nice. I've, it's another species I've never found. I've been wanting to target them. 
Um, a lot of spelunkers find them in February when they go caving. Uh, they'll see just a little chunk of snake, you know, hiding behind the wall. Um, I've seen them in meat markets. I, I tried to rescue one. Uh, the picture on, I think, the next page is that rescued animal. Um, well, yeah, page 95, that, that specimen is the exact same specimen that's on page 99. So he was at a meat market in Guangdong. I bought him for, uh, let me do the conversion. For $3. I bought him for $3. <laughs> wow. And uh, gave him to my friend Dan to see if he could keep him alive. But a lot of those animals that you find in the meat markets, uh, they're beyond saving. Yeah, they're too far gone. Yeah. Still awesome. Yeah, there were some species I hadn't even heard of in here. What was the... Uh, let me see if I can find it. Uh... The, the one that starts with the Z? No, well, so the Cantorus. Oh, I'm yeah. Really unfamiliar with. And then the, uh, so the Hod, Hodgeye? Hodgeye? Yeah, Hodgeye, yeah. Hodgeye Z. And that, that Soygenensis is uh, another one, if that's how you pronounce yeah, it. Yeah, that's, that's probably the newest rat snake um, discovered. 79. He was what, 2014 maybe? 2012. He was 2012. Hmm. He was misidentified as a color variant of, I think, Dione for a long time. Until you know somebody finally said, no, this is not Dione. It's something different. Yeah. And then yeah. So many cool species in here. The, the Cantorus and the Hodgson's. Yeah, they barely get into China. But so, you know, both in this book and the other book I'm working on, any species that is right on the border, I'm going to include. Because, you know, it's just a matter of years until somebody finds it on the other side of the border. Of right. course. Of course. So I think it's better to provide too much information on a potential species that you could possibly run into versus not yeah that's the classic you know distribution map where it shows you know the color area and then the question marks where it could be or might be you know? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah well the most important question of the evening is 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 general so's chicken really not a thing <laughs> over there it's not there's no such thing over there they did a whole documentary on it at one point, and I never watched it, but I watched the trailer. They basically no talked about how that was basically an American-made thing, I guess. Yep. There's no fortune cookies, there's no General So's chicken, and there's no um, egg rolls. Yeah, I heard Chinese food in the United States is better than in China. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> I, I heard that Chinese food in the United States is actually better than food in China. You're, you're being sarcastic, right? That's what everyone who goes to China tells me. <laughs> oh, my God. Must be going to the wrong places, then. The 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 simplest little throw-together lunch, I think, blows the water out of any Chinese restaurant I've ever been to in the U.S. You don't like sugar chicken? 
What's funny is uh, my my we call him my uncle, but it's basically I have a very good family friend who lives in Sydney, and uh, he's not a herper at all. But uh, you know, he comes to the United States. You well, pre-COVID, he was coming. You know, every summer for a month or two to hang out with my parents, and you know, he gets annoyed because he feels like the farther away he gets from Asia, the better the food tastes. <laughs> wow. It just must be, he must have some twisted senses down under. He must. Oh my God. No, that was one of the other, some of the best food I've ever tasted in my life has been China. Oh, I could go on and on and on. Like if you were to look at my Flickr page, which is just Kevin Messenger, um, I have an entire album dedicated to Chinese food. That's awesome. <laughs> like, the, the the food there is phenomenal. I think the only other food I've had uh, to surpass it, and this is just because I love cheese, is when I went to Italy, you know, a lot of the food in Italy was amazing. But that's because Italy has a lot of cheese, and I love yeah, cheese. Really- yeah. But if, if not for cheese... Um, I think Chinese would be my number one. I think cheese is the only thing that puts Italian above Chinese. Awesome, I love so it. So, if, if you would not focus studies on China, where would that? Where would your your runner up be? Uh, man, um, I would still stick to Asia, and I, I am kind of giving consideration to moving to maybe Vietnam. So I went to Vietnam last summer for a herp mm-hmm. trip. We actually did a, I was only on the Thailand and Vietnam part, but my friends, the ones that did the whole thing, they started in Malaysia and then they went to Thailand and then Vietnam and then Hong Kong and then Taiwan. That was the entire trip. I participated in the, in the Thailand and the Vietnam part. And I'd never been to Vietnam before. Um, and Vietnam reminded me of China in the early 2000s when everything was super, super cheap. You know, so Kevin, an, another Kevin, um, Dan and I, we arrived at the same time. He's Kevin and Dan are my Hong Kong herpers. Whenever I go down to Hong Kong, I usually stay with Dan and the three of us, you know, we do a lot of herp trips together. Um And so we arrived in Vietnam. We go to a little uh, baguette sandwich shop because, you know, Vietnam has a lot of French influence. And Dan's like, I'll I'll cover it and we'll square up later. So he buys three baguettes, sandwiches, subs, whatever you want to call them, and some coffees. And after we're done eating the food, which was amazing and filling, uh, we try to square up for the, the meal. And um, so we're doing all these calculations, trying to figure out who has how much of what currency. And then I'm like, wait a minute, how much, you know, does this convert to in U.S. dollars? How how much are we talking about that we're actually spending 10 minutes arguing over? And he does the conversion. He's like, oh, okay, Kevin, you owe me 25 cents. (laughs) And and the other Kevin, you owe me uh, 37 cents. (laughs) <laughs> that's amazing so we're like yeah <laughs> don't worry about it hey, that's Thanks. apparently dan maliri got that house in thailand for next to nothing because property and stuff like that like u.s is the conversion is just ridiculous yeah no the, the, one of my favorite field sites in thailand where um a friend of mine he tracks king cobras rated telemetry tracks them um you can stay there 
is an awesome uh, little research station, three meals a day, you know, your own bed, hot shower. And I think you're looking at um, maybe $10 a day. Wow. That's crazy. crazy. And then you just, you know, walk out your door and you can find, you know, toke geckos are all over your, uh, your room and mm-hmm. flying snakes are everywhere. Monitors are everywhere. Macrops. Yeah. All about them macrops, baby. Well, remember Aaron, Aaron Ferguson did that article on herping in Bangkok and he talked about just macrops were not hard to find. You know, they were, they were pretty, pretty prevalent. Yeah, man. Dude, that whole peninsula is awesome. Yeah. Thailand. Thailand's awesome. I really loved Vietnam. I have not been to any other Asian country. I've been to Japan once. And what sucked about Japan is it's basically the same cost as um, the U.S. So I I went for a conference, a HERP conference. And um, I arrived at the airport. I took like a five-minute taxi from the airport to my hotel. And it was like $10. And I was blown away because I'm like the exact same taxi ride in China would have been 50 cents. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. So, so other than Japan, um, I think, yeah, anywhere in Southeast China or Southeast Asia. So I would consider. you said you had missed out on, on a Taiwan or you had gone? I mean, I've been to Taiwan three Three times now, it's okay. amazing. Did did you ever find Formosan cobras or not? Um, yeah, yeah, we did. That's awesome. But I didn't realize they were um, they're not their own thing, are they? It's just so well that, that they're basically atra, but yeah. but everyone has their own take on it. Should it be its own thing because it's yeah. been you know island locked for so long and true, true. A, lot, a lot of people in in, in you know, the herpetoculture world, they crossbreed them with normal Atra just because there's, there is so very few Atra in captivity nowadays. Okay. Um, but their venom is supposedly completely different as well. It's supposed to be way more volatile than Atra, than normal Atra. Okay. So. Good to know. Well, yeah, no, we found them. We found cobras in Taiwan. Yeah. Super cool. Super cool. Ta- Taiwan. If I am itching for road cruising, I go to Taiwan. It's really hard to road cruise in China because foreigners can't rent a car unless you have a Chinese driver's license. They don't recognize international driver's licenses, but Taiwan does. So you can just fly over to Taiwan, rent a car, and there's this one mountain range where um, Bill is my guy in Taiwan that I always go herping with. Um, yeah, we just go, go road cruise this one mountain, um, and it's super prolific. I mean, I think a normal night is around 20 snakes. That's awesome. What have you found Boiga wise? Uh, we found Boiga guangxiensis in um, Vietnam. Uh, I found Boiga motomaculata in mm-hmm. Hong Kong. Boiga crepeleni is all over normal China. I found both color phases of crepeleni or crepeleni in Taiwan, the gray phase and the red phase. Um, I think that's it for Boiga. Oh, no. Um, in Thailand, I've also found Boiga cyana. Cyania, the, yeah. Cyania, yeah, yep. the solid green one. Yeah. 
that's what I'm keeping and breeding right now. Nice. I love that. The one that I found, I loved it. They're cool. You know, it's interesting because Dan Maleri posted a video a couple weeks ago where they found one and it was actually, I want to say in like the low 60s and they found a, a small one just cruising, just hanging out. And so I'm of the opinion that kind of like chondros, you know, maybe we're keeping them a little too warm. Like they can, I've had my female unplug her heat panel before and, you know, she'll dip into the like low 70s, mid 70s and they do fine. They're, I think they're, they're a little, little more bulletproof than, than we give them credit for. Does anybody keep uh, Crepolini? Uh, Jordan Russell used to breed them, I believe. Um, but as far as what's in the States now, I don't. If there are, there are very few. There's like maybe only a handful of people that even have them. I like. So later I'll send you a bunch of photos because we have seen so much variation in the Boigas that we have seen that I wonder if there's another species in the mix. And that it's being identified as Crippolini when it should be something else. Well, I know they, so there's one species that just got either split or reclassified. Uh, and that's the Benculuensis. But I want to say that was, that's not, I don't think that was related directly to Crepolini. I think it was one of the other, I'm drawing a blank on it right now, but. I think it's oh, it's the Drapezi, Drapezi eye. Oh yeah, I, I remember hearing about that yep. being split. Yep. But yeah, no, I love Boiga, and I wish there was more diversity in most of China. But most of the diversity is in south of China. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, there's really not a lot of species. I mean, that genus is is larger than I think people realize. Um, most but definitely. There's really only a handful that we can, I mean, we get maybe, I would even say a third of that group is available here in the States. And a lot of them are also Indian. So there's, I mean, we're not going to get those probably ever. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's really only a handful. <clears throat> and uh, I mean, I realize they're, they're not for everybody, but that's definitely a genus I'm, I'm wanting to pursue more heavily. Yeah. They're just, they're like, yeah, I mean, them, man. what about Morta Maculata? Um, are they, does anybody ever find them in the pet trade? Um, they're a dwarf, but we got, and that's really cool. Anything dwarf is really cool. So the, there's some guys in Europe that have a lot of species, uh, compared to what we have here in the States. I don't know that I've ever seen those available here. Um, if I have, it maybe have only been like one or two and like Trigonata, like we don't ever see those. I think that's one that Nipper has our buddy in the UK. Um, and those are cool because yeah. they look just like saw scales. Like they look so much like Echis. It's, it's insane. Yeah. Even though it's like, like if you took an Echis and you like stretched it out and made it <laughs> super thin, like the pattern is, is almost identical. It's wild. Yeah. I mean, what you figure, what we have six species, maybe seven max. It depends on if you're, if you're considering like all the, Dendrophila stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, just all right. So you just talk, you know, Dendro, Melanota, Cyania, Sandon, uh, Gemisincta, uh, Divergens. That's about yeah, it. Yeah, right? and you see a little bit of the uh, the many bandits or the ringed, I mean, uh, which is the. I don't remember the name on those. Yeah, um, but then the the latifasciata, 
there's there's only okay. a handful of those in the country. Um, the Guangiensis, there's actually been probably more of those lately in the last year or so than there's probably ever been. Um, yeah. And then obviously, you know, Irregularis or Flavicens, like those, no one has those, um, right. even though Florida banned them. Um, Nigerceps. Yeah, a handful of Nigerceps. So, yeah, but all like the Indian stuff and some of those, uh, we get Jaspidia sometimes. Those are kind of hard to, those, those are more difficult just because those are almost entirely lizard eaters from what I understand. Hmm. Um, the Drapezii, the Benculuensis. Um, so maybe it is more than I, I guess I originally thought, but I mean, that's still a, that's a large genus and, and we really don't, the cool stuff we don't have. Right. All the all the really cool species in that genus that that are just really badass looking. Those are all the Indian and Sri Lankan varieties, unfortunately. They're fun. I'm excited for the second clutch to hatch, man. Hoping I have a better better survival rate. And which uh, species are you hatching? That's the Cyania. So I've got, okay. an, I got an adult pair. Um, I had a my first clutch hatched out on December 1st. Um, it was a nine egg clutch. I only ended up with three that survived. I had a handful that died full term. And then she dropped a second clutch uh, like a week after that, that first clutch hatched. So that's the clutch I'm, uh, that should be hatching in the next couple of days. Nice. Those things are breeding machines, man. Like, I don't think she she barely lost any weight. I mean, she cranked out that second clutch in no time, like crazy. It's like she dropped the first one, went straight into a prelay shed, and then boom, huh. had the other one. Yeah, it's really no surprise that they're as common as they are in their native range. But I think we covered everything, y'all. I would agree. Yeah. I, uh, I, I wasn't sure if it was going to make it to two hours, but it, it did. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. We, we, we had plenty of questions. We still have questions, I'm sure. That we forget. <laughs> yeah. Um, very excited to read it. Very excited to get into it. Um, I need to not finish that. I'm still reading that that Venomous Bites from Non-Venomous Snakes book, Phil, that mm. I've been reading slowly for the last yeah. six months because I take forever to finish books. Yeah. Um, but this is definitely going to be the next one. Um, Billy's probably damn near done with it already i'm sure billy hasn't slept billy has been literally reading this book for the past 48 hours <laughs> <laughs> but if anybody wants to get a hold of you or has questions what's the best way for them to do that is there a uh yeah um <clears throat> either you, you can try on my facebook which as long as i'm in the u.s i have it and even when i'm in china occasionally i'll fire it up um so let me type down my my primary email, which everybody usually laughs at it because nobody uses this anymore. There it is. <laughs> AOL. Awesome. Yes. Yep. So a pet, a pet peeve of mine is when somebody sends a mass email, they're like, oh, I've changed emails. You know, please delete my old address and use this yeah. one. This is the same one I've had since 10th grade. I have the same mm. one from 10th grade for me too. <laughs> and it gets way less spam than my Gmail. I think it's because the spammers don't think anybody uses AOL. 
yeah. So that's the best way to get in touch with me. Awesome. 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 Well, we very much appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, yeah, like yeah, I said, very excited to read the book. I'll have a link to the Amazon uh, Amazon link where you can get this. And uh, I even I paid the extra like expedited shipping. Man, I was ready. <laughs> like, get it here. So, yeah, we uh, we really appreciate it. Well, yeah, it was great to to be here. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Uh, everyone, be sure to check out once again Steve Snakeshuary and MP Cages and Exotics because they help make this show happen every week. Uh, you will see us again Monday night at nine for Snakes and Stogies sixty nine. Yeah. Um, and then THP one seventeen next week, which I believe we're going to have to move to Friday because one Scott Iper wants to join us. Really? He, he called me while I was at work the other day. Which Good. just like the, the the fascination that you have of like oh my buddy in Australia is calling me right now and then like on a whim yep. I was like Scott Iper and he's like hey man let's let's make it happen and so it's like the future you can't, say no. You yeah. can't say no that that's the best because because Scott will call me just to shoot the shit about something and it's like you you can't hang up because it's it's beyond long distance right. You can't hang up. So then I look at the phone and like the little timer on it. And I'm like, Jesus, it's been an hour and 40 minutes. Like, what are we talking about? <laughs> but it's awesome. Scott's amazing. And we love him. Yeah, we've been wanting to get him on for a while. So. Yeah, that's great, man. I'm stoked. What What's uh, the topic? Uh, probably a lapids and all the yeah. other venomous, yeah. maybe some imbricata. Sure. Yeah, Scott's down under. And uh, he has one of the arguably the nicest, if not one of the nicest facilities. And it's all private. It's all his. It's all just his personal collection. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he, ha- he has a wealth of knowledge on anything Australian as well as outside of Australia. He's got extensive handling ability and knowledge and just breeding and husbandry. And the, the, yeah, he, he I, I remember him from the uh, Field Herb Forum. Um, and since that's died off, I've kind of lost touch with him. So I wasn't sure what he's doing nowadays. Yeah, he's on yeah. Facebook. Oh, yeah. yeah. Him and his wife, Ty, they have a breathtaking collection. And, you know, she she's into snakes probably more than he is. It's awesome. Well, he has some very interesting stories as well about bites from snakes that oh. are not that bad. Yeah. Oh, oh, man. And having really interesting reactions. So, yeah. Oh. Cool. All right, man. Well, have a good evening. Thank you so much for everything. The book being on here, we love it. I'm yeah. sure I will be getting a hard copy when those are available. Of course, I have uh, to. I'll make it well known. Yeah, buying the hard copy gives me a reason to honestly to, to go to China because then I can bring the soft copy with me. So yeah. I can mess it up. And we can introduce them to the General Tso's chicken. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Show them what they're missing. Be like, let um, me show you how to make your food. Uh, Hey, where's the Panda Express? (laughs) (laughs) All right, y'all. All All right. Thanks so much. Good night. Later.